Morning, church. Today, our scripture reading is from Matthew 5, verses 21 through 37. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin... Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is by the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Thank you, Liza. Church, you may be seated. Uh, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. If you haven't already, Matthew chapter four, please meet, or chapter five rather, please meet me uh, in that text. Matthew chapter five, uh, verse twenty-one and following. We're going to do our very best to make it to verse thirty-seven. Um, Perhaps you already picked up on this just in the scripture reading uh, today, but we're going to navigate some pretty challenging ideas today. And so I'd like to just ask for your permission to proceed um, to some sensitive areas, some areas that perhaps for some of us are easy to read a text like this and to go, oh, I wonder what we're going to talk about today. And for others, we, we read that and we go, I sure hope we don't talk about this. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that our brothers and sisters in a space like this um, have a myriad of different experiences with the themes that Jesus covers. Um, and our desire always when we forge through challenging subjects that the scriptures open us up to, it's for your good and for your healing, not for your shame and not for your condemnation because that's not why Jesus brings it up. I think what Jesus is diagnosing here is that sin has fractured his creation. Sin has fractured you and me as his image bearers in a few different ways that I'd like to look at today. Because uh, what Jesus, I think, desires to do is to make us whole. 
And we live in such a fractured world, meaning so many things that are belong together are not together, that I think it's easy to believe that's just how it's supposed to be. But I think what the scriptures teach us is not what it, sh- what it looks like in our culture or, or in our neighborhood or in our particular experience, but what the Lord has intended from the beginning, what the Lord has intended in his creation. And I think that's what can feel so challenging is it feels easy and safe to just go, let's just not talk about it. Let's leave things separated because bringing them together seems really hard and challenging. Um, but I, I, I believe with all of my spirit that the reason he is bringing it together is to restore all things. And one day, whatever is left undone will be fully done. All sad things will be untrue. All separated things will be reunited. All broken things will be healed. And so the beauty of the gospel is that he begins that work now. And so I, I believe that's what he's doing as he presents the kingdom here in Matthew chapter 5. And there are six different things he lists. And I think the first two, or first four rather, belong together, and the fifth and sixth sort of belong together. Um, the fifth and sixth talk about how to love difficult people. Um, so we'll save that for next week, so just anticipate. Um, how do we love difficult people? Um, I think he addresses that in the, the last two pericopes. But in the first four, he's going to talk to us about how, how are people made whole in a fractured world. How are people made whole in a, fa- in a fractured world? So that's what I'd like to talk about today. I want to talk about how Jesus makes us whole. I want to talk about how Jesus heals us because I think that's what he desires for his people. That's the entire vision of the kingdom. The entire vision of the coming king, Jesus being the king of this kingdom that's breaking into this world, is to bring together that which sin has fractured. It's bringing together that which sin has separated and divorced and divided. See, sin has separated God from humanity, it's separated heaven from earth, and it's separated people from each other. This is nothing new. I, th- I think we're, perhaps many of us are more aware of it because we're beginning to pay attention or perhaps because social media is constantly reminding us of this or any kind of media we take in or any kind of relationships. We realize how divided it is, but it's not just between people. What the scriptures begin with is the division within you and the division within me, the fracture that's taken place within our souls. And so Jesus is going to cover this in a number of different ways. He's going to talk about anger, lust, deception, divorce, all of these things he's going to say are bringing division to our souls. Yet through the healing power of the gospel, here's the promise, here's the good news, you can and will be reconciled through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can be made whole again. And I think that's deeply hopeful that emotionally, physically, and spiritually, we are not only going to be made whole, but the Lord loves you so much that he's beginning to knit you back together again while you live and breathe, just as he first knit you together in your mother's womb. He desires to knit his people back together again where sin has pulled us apart. And so I want to walk through these three sections um, of these four different pericopes of this passage and consider then how Jesus brings us back together. We'll look at three ways that um, he's making us whole. He's making us whole emotionally, he's making us whole physically, and he's making us whole spiritually. So emotionally whole, physically whole, and spiritually whole. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, This is hard to bring up because there's a lot of pain here I can sense in my own spirit and that in my brothers and sisters. Even the themes that we have sung this morning, I think, have prepared us to participate with your Holy Spirit in healing. And what a gift that your people are not supposed to just be these brains that learn new facts, 
but whole beings that find healing in your gospel. We need your healing. I need your healing. My sisters and my brothers need your healing. And so we're grateful that the good shepherd is also a good physician. And he knows us intricately, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And through the power and the mystery of the gospel makes us whole again. And so I pray, yes, that we would have wonderful things that we learn today about your word and apply to our lives tomorrow. But would you also be so kind through your spirit to heal us on the spot? We trust your word does that. We trust that your word, when it is open, proclaim, and your spirit illuminates and shines brightly through the scriptures, your people are made new. And so we are eager for that, that newness of life to take hold of our hearts and our minds. So would you do that for your glory and our good? In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus begins with our emotions, and he specifically talks about anger, which I was pretty frustrated with when I opened up the text. Um, because, um, suffice to say, I, I certainly, especially what COVID squeezed out of me was anger. Um, and so I proceed with you in hearing the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Here's what Jesus says. You've heard it said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable uh, to the hell of fire. So Jesus' instructions are in these next six movements are going to follow the same pattern. He's going to say, here's what you've heard said, here's what I say with, to you, and here's what's going to happen, or here's what you need to do about it. And so he begins with the sixth commandment. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, simply says, you shall not murder. But in, in Jesus' recollection of this commandment, notice he adds a little bit. He, he includes a consequence. He says, whoever murders, as you've heard, will be liable to judgment. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus is not just describing what the Old Testament teaches, but he's also including or describing what the religious leaders of the day were, and rather how they were interpreting it, what they were saying about it, how they were applying it in their context. See, Jewish leaders aren't just teaching people, here's what God said, but they're also putting their traditional spin on it and saying, here's then what you should do about it. Here's how to apply this. And so Jesus is bringing all of that. And in the case of, of murder, it seems that they were saying, don't murder because murderers are liable for this kind of judgment. And now Jesus steps in and begins to explain to his disciples that the punishment that the Pharisees believed was reserved for the worst of the worst, the murderers. Notice what does he say? Verse 22. It's reserved for everyone who is angry with his brother. So the thing you think is reserved for the worst of the worst is actually reserved for those of you who harbor bitterness. See, Jesus is reframing righteousness around the heart. It's not about perhaps a physical wound or a physical harm that you would um, execute against a neighbor, but it's about hatred. It's about anger. It's about what's stirring in your soul. And so in reframing around the heart, what Jesus is really doing is he's diagnosing this real problem within our souls, which is that sin has separated anger from love. This is the first fracture that I'd like to consider, that sin has separated anger from love. What's that mean? Well, in Psalm and in the writings of Paul, this refrain is repeated, be angry and do not sin. What we can learn from that is that there are two types of anger. There is an anger that leads to sin, and there is an anger that doesn't lead to sin. So in your anger, Paul and the psalmist write, do not sin. That tells us that anger is not always bad. The Bible teaches us two types of anger, an anger that gives birth to sin and an anger that doesn't give birth to sin. Or we can at least put it this way, an anger that comes from fear 
and an anger that comes from love. After all, God gets angry a lot in the Bible. He gets angry a lot. In his sermon, Jesus then is addressing, I think, that particular idea of anger, of fear. Fear always fractures our emotional consciousness. Why? Why, do, why is fear so destructive in our souls? Because fear never lets you sleep. Fear never lets you sleep. We had this alarm go off a couple of days ago. It was nothing. I was Googling for an hour what that particular notification meant, right? Everything was fine. No glass was broken. Everything, but my alarm tripped, and I'm like, I can't go to sleep. Someone's attacking my children. We're all going to die, right? And I just sat doom scrolling through Google to figure out the manufacturing reset of our system. Fear doesn't let you sleep. If that's true physically, how much more spiritually and emotionally deep down within us that when there is fear that is animating our actions, we never get to rest. We're never satisfied. Because anger ultimately, I think, is an attempt to drive out fear through control and manipulation. The way we try to deal with our fear often through anger is by controlling things and manipulating and even inflicting a kind of pain on someone, whether psychologically, physically, or otherwise. What's more, what's really interesting when you get to peel back, is this actually doesn't work. It never works, but we keep trying it. None of us has a successful pattern in which fear was driven away through anger, but every time fear shows up, like, give it another shot. Let's see if it works this time. Um, but, but even on top of that, have you ever noticed how you judge yourself when you get angry, that, that cycle? I, this is legit in my soul. Uh, and it's always comforting to read the New York Times and find out that your soul has company, right? <laughs> um, but the New York Times actually recently did uh, a report on new research that indicates how complicated our relationship with, with anger is. Melinda Moyer reported that, and I quote, that people who habitually judge negative feelings, such as sadness, fear, and anger, as bad or inappropriate, have more anxiety and depression symptoms and feel less satisfied with their lives than people who generally perceive their negative emotions in a positive or neutral way. What's that mean? In other words, we get angry about getting angry, and that makes us more angry. That's the cycle. Fear keeps showing up, we get angry, it doesn't work, then we get angry and shame that we got angry and shamed, and so what do we do? We get even more angry, because there's more fear. Perhaps this is why the psalmist knew when those kinds of emotions creeped in, it's really good to slow down. It's really good to slow down. Psalm 4, verses 4 and 5 says, be angry and do not sin. There's that refrain, and then he says this, ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. And then it says, Selah. That, that word, Selah, that we probably have run into a lot in the Psalms is really like this breath in the poem. It's this breath, this pause. So even, even in a physical sense, in reading this, we're supposed to take a break right there. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. The, then the Apostle James picks up on David's cue, telling his readers in James 1, Know this, my beloved brothers, let everyone be quick, to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So anger of fear never produces rest, and James just adds to that he says that that kind of anger also never leads to righteousness. That the anger of fear through control and manipulation never leads to righteousness. Therefore, what, what I think we learn from this quick overview is that when we're angry, we're not whole. We're not healthy. That fracture pers persists. And so we need to slow down. Some of us need to slow down. 
I need to actually interrogate my anger. I need to understand where is that coming from? Is that fear? Is that love? Is this a righteous indignation? Is this a selfish indignation? And that can be scary to interrogate your emotions because we don't always know what we're going to find. But the beauty of it, and this is how the Lord begins to make us whole, he actually journeys with you into your soul. You know, when Jesus says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, that's not just a statement about time. That's a statement about place and presence. He's with you when you interrogate your emotions. See, God is often angry, isn't he? The Bible is actually unapologetic. Don't you wish that, like, these places, and many of us perhaps wrestle with our faith, when we open up the Scriptures and God gets angry, you're like, could I get a footnote there about why that anger is so extreme, why it's so violent, why it's so big, right? Perhaps for many of us, this is one of our primary struggles with the God of the Bible. He just gets angry too much for me. I like nice, orderly, like, like loving Jesus, but this toss and temple table stuff, like, I can't, I can't get down with that. See, I think what we believe, without perhaps articulating it, is that we believe that God's wrath steals away from his love. That when his wrath shows up, we go, oh, I don't, I don't want to think about that too much because it's going to take away from his love, and I like his love. So in order to leave the concept of God's love unaffected, we don't think about his anger. Sort of siphon it up. This is what we do with our own anger, right? I'm not going to interrogate, ah, that's not really me. I'm really a loving person and a kind person. And then you freak out, ah, I'm angry at being angry and now I'm even more angry, right? And there's this cycle. So what we even do with it internally, we're doing, I think, even in our own theology and our view of God. However, uh, Dr. Tim Keller points out in his book on forgive, which I highly recommend to you, his book on forgiveness, that not only um, are God's love and anger not intention, but apart from one another, they're meaningless. That when you pull apart God's love and God's wrath, their meaning begins to dissolve because they are established upon one another. They're intricately connected. You see, God, in other words, only gets angry when someone or something that he loves is being threatened or being destroyed. When you follow God's anger back, Whenever you read a story of his anger showing up, if you follow that back, you will find someone or something that he loves, that he has created for his glory, being misused, abused, mistreated, or destroyed. It's always coming from a place of love. Why? Because God is whole. The fracture between anger and love does not persist within him. What we could say is that his, his anger, his wrath, and his love live in harmony, and that's what's disjointed within us. Fear makes us angry rather than love. So the question, of course, is how can we be made whole? How can uh, fear be eradicated within us? How are love and anger reconciled? Well, Jesus continues, look at Matthew 5, verse 23, with some really practical counsel. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you point, rather you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you pay the last penny. Jesus is saying that anger, or holding on to our anger, is like killing somebody. So what should we do with that anger? We should reconcile it. We should seek reconciliation. We should seek forgiveness. We should repent. We should talk about it. We should confess our fear because what I have learned from people much smarter than me and even in my own experience is that fear hates to be named. Fear hates to be pushed into the light. It hates to be known. 
It doesn't do well being known. And so when we push fear into the light, we speak honestly about our anger, and all of a sudden, some of its destructive power begins to corrode. So instead of siphoning off our anger from our, from our love, we actually let them come close to each other. And let's be clear, reconciliation is not about overlooking what makes you angry. Reconciliation is about naming what makes you angry and reaching for love instead of fear in that moment. This takes practice. This takes time. After all, but this is the gospel. When God's wrath was on us, He neither overlooked our sin or what was making Him angry, nor did He destroy us. Rather, what does he do? He sends his son to bear the wrath, to bear his anger. In other words, what's he do? He reaches for love, or perhaps better, more poetically, love reaches for us. So anger has a way, or rather, anger has been fractured from fear. And in Christ, perfect love drives out fear so that love and our anger can dwell together again. Jesus moves on from this inward life now to our bodies. Like our emotions, our bodies even have been divided and devastated by sin. Look what he says, Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Notice again the pattern. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus again is reframing righteousness around the heart. In this case, he's highlighting the seventh commandment. Exodus 20, verse 14, he says, you shall not commit adultery. And like murder, the religious class was taking this commandment that legalistically then held the line of adultery at having sex with someone who, was not, who you were not married to. They interpreted this law literally. But what Jesus points out is that while there may never have been intercourse, people are capable of committing adultery in their hearts. This is severe. So one of the things that Jesus is doing is he is elevating what holiness looks like, right? Because maybe some of us read a particular commandment and you're like, bet, I can do that. In fact, maybe you look at the list of 10 and you're like, A minus, that's pretty good, right? The 10 commandments, you go, C plus, (laughs) C's get degrees, maybe they also get you into heaven. I don't know. We'll, we'll, We'll see. But, but the beauty is in reframing it around the heart, he's putting it in this spiritual space and category where he is Lord, where he transforms, where he does this work, where he draws near. So in this strange paradox, he's making holiness less attainable and more attainable at the very same time. He's making it impossible without resurrection. He's making it unreachable without him reaching you first. In other words, though, what Jesus is saying here about the seventh commandment, is that it's not just about your bodies. It's about your soul's relationship with your body. It's not just about what you do with your body. It's about your soul's relationship with your body. Now, this is where I think a lot of us carry a lot of pain, a lot of false notions about our bodies, a lot of false notions about our sexuality. And in recent history, the American church has been completely void in articulating any kind of vision or understanding of a biblical awareness of wholeness in our bodies. Our souls and our bodies, in other words, have, have been allowed not simply to remain fractured, but that fracture, that, that divide has been pushed to its extreme. So in other words, I, th- I think this is the tragedy of our dealing in sexuality as the American church in, the, in most recent history. What sin divided, the church has pushed further apart. 
What sin broke, the relationship between your soul and your body, the church has pushed further apart. For many of us, this stems from something that was dubbed as purity culture. Purity culture was a movement within conservative Christian communities through much of the 90s and on into the early 2000s. And during this time, Christian Bible teachers, authors, ministries, pastors even like myself, painted a frightening picture of sex with one intention in mind, to keep kids from having sex before they got married. So they painted this terrifying picture of what could happen to you, even pillaging Scripture and saying that it was, it was talking about the consequences from the Old Testament. What would happen to you if you had sex with somebody who wasn't your spouse? However, I think the byproduct of this, many of us regretfully have lived out, the byproduct of this movement was a deeply confused and fractured generation of Christians as it related to our own sexuality and our own bodies, let alone the sexuality or body of another. We were told, in other words, repeatedly, what not to do with our bodies, but we were never told about our bodies. We were told, don't do this until this happens. But we were never told about the beauty of our bodies. We were never taught and discipled about sex. We were only taught to fear it, let alone how our souls and our bodies belong together. Now, biblically speaking, our body, this is where we find wholeness. When we understand or when we see not only ourselves but others, when we see our bodies through the lens of our souls. See, human beings are not only bearers of God's image. That's Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. And not only do we see the perfect expression of soul and body of our humanity in the eternal Son of God who took on flesh, John chapter 1, verse 14, but also you and I are the union of mind, spirit, heart, and strength. That's Deuteronomy chapter 6. Our bodies and our souls belong together. Yet what sin does and what much of Christian culture persists in is separating our bodies from our souls. Think about pornography, because Jesus is describing lust here. He's talking about what's taking place in our hearts about our bodies or about the body of another. Think about pornography. What's actually going on? It's the practice of detaching a body or even body parts into merely physical and visible commodities for self-centered pleasure. It's detaching body from soul. Rather than seeing the body through a soul meant for glory and relationship. In other words, the real violation of porn is the belittling of a body-soul person into just a body. That's the cosmic violation. And church, as someone who was addicted to pornography for five or six years, this was the real violation that I needed to repent of, that I needed to unlearn, that I needed to heal from, that I needed to grow with my wife in years after that violation so that I didn't carry shame and anger toward that person or that experience but became whole again and still in the process of that. Think about purity culture. It's not about discipling people into healthy relationships. What's it about? It's about learning to distrust your body and fearing the body of another, particularly if they, if they are the opposite sex. It's to distrust what your body is doing, what it is capable of or incapable of, and looking at the body of another with despisement or fear. It scares us, rather into separating even boys and girls into isolated stories of discipleship as if they don't need each other to image God. 
as if being together steals from the image as opposed to enhances the image. This is why we are so committed to having groups with men and women, married people, single people, with kids, without kids, church background, without one, come one, come all, why? Because we can't image God without you. We can't bear witness to the wholeness of humanity if we say this is only for these people or these kinds of persons. The church is the whole picture. This is why we're called what? The body of Christ. Soul and body, physical and spiritual, united. See, we were taught to fear our bodies and distrust the body of another. We were never taught the beauty of our body's unique role to play in the drama of God's redemptive narrative. And I beseech your forgiveness. Certainly as someone of the class of pastors and of ministry teachers and leaders, this was something I've been so blind to, and I'm sorry. And I pray, sister and brother, that one of the things that you experience in our church fellowship is not simply biblical teaching, but it's this kind of healing that you can come as you are in your journey of sexual healing, of understanding your body and soul, and know that you have a sister and a brother who journeys with you in that. You are not alone in this. And we can't begin to understand fully what your story is or what harm or hurt or pain you're carrying, but we want to carry it with you. You never were meant to carry that by yourself. Many of us are victims, if you will, of an entire cultural generation of separating your body from your soul. And one of the things I want to learn and grow in and want to see us all grow in is what does it look like? Can you even imagine if my body and soul were brought back together again? If I could look at my sister, not simply as a body, but as one who I desperately need to be in relationship with in order for the image of God to be demonstrated to the world. Or to look at my brother and go, I can't be at war in competition with you about what our bodies look like. We've got to be shoulder to shoulder in this so we can image the word or the, the, the glory of God and the image of God together. See, this body and soul separation is, of course, not new. The original fracture took place in the garden. And this is one of those passages, by the way, that I looked at for years and, and all, often missed. See, if you know the story, Adam and Eve, the very first couple, experience sin, and the first thing that happens, we're told in Genesis, is that they realize they were naked. That's interesting. How have I been a Christian for 30 years and never been said, hey, can we ask some questions about that? Ask some questions about Genesis and why, like, all of a sudden they're like, oh my gosh, you and I look different naked. That's, what, what's that about? You see, before sin, the first couple, they had been naked, and they were what? Not ashamed. We're told that in Genesis chapter 2. However, when they disobeyed God, Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, then their eyes were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, why? Why did sin bring bodily shame immediately? Pastor Rich Velotas observes, before the fall, Adam and Eve didn't live blind to each other's bodies. In, in other words, they didn't just get eyesight, but their gaze didn't begin and end with a fixation on each other's body parts, but rather in the wholeness of their being. So here's the real tragedy. In other words, they saw their bodies originally through their souls, but sin separated bodies from their souls and shame stepped in. And when sin, what sin did then is really opened up their eyes and they saw less, not more. 
They saw what merely physically. They didn't see body and soul as one. This is what we are still healing from. This is why there's no shame. This is why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This has been part of the prevailing human issue since Adam and Eve, is that we are constantly detaching body from soul. And that fracture of our own bodies, too, I think we see less. In his sermon, Jesus is giving us, I think, our spiritual eyesight back. See, as adultery detaches sex from covenant, lust detaches body from soul. And so his disciples don't just avoid sex with someone they're not married to. Rather, his disciples see their wholeness and the wholeness of fellow image bearers with body and soul. This is a devastating fracture. It's so troubling that Jesus tells his disciples to take drastic action to prevent this separation from persisting. Look what he says in verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. At first blush, this seems really extreme, right? really counterintuitive to this wholeness idea that we've been talking about. And in fact, Jesus is not speaking literally, and plenty of people, tragically, I shouldn't even smile, but have taken him literally through the years of church history. There are some crazy stories. We don't have time to share all of them now, but let's just suffice to say for our time, he's speaking metaphorically. Jesus does this from time to time. I think it's important that we understand that. He doesn't want his disciples, what he's, what he's saying metaphorically, he doesn't just want his disciples to avoid sex with someone they're not married to, but he wants them to look, not even look at something that causes them to lust, that causes them to separate body and soul. He wants them to stop doing whatever causes them to lust, whatever causes them, any action, anything you see, whatever you see, whatever you do, wherever you go, Jesus is saying, be thoughtful. If it's causing you to separate body and soul, stop. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. This actually takes us back to Romans chapter 14. Remember, because righteousness is a matter of the heart, not every experience that we have that may be sinful for one person is sinful for another. This is what Paul wrote about in verse 23 in Romans 14. That means that some of us can probably watch certain movies that others can't. Some of us may go to the beach or the gym or wear certain kind of clothes that other people just can't, and that's okay. It's going to look different for us. This means that some people can maintain a close relationship with someone of the opposite sex or same sex without the temptation of separating body and soul, and others can't, and that's okay. See, I think we all should be pursuing and seeking maturity in what theologian Marvadon calls sexual character, but we should also acknowledge our weaknesses. We should also acknowledge where we are beginning this journey, and that's okay, how we're seeking wholeness. One of the beautiful mysteries of Jesus' resurrected body is that it's old, but it's also new. In other words, there are just as many stories as people not recognizing Jesus at first because he looks different or his um, identity is being concealed in some way as there is evidence that this is the same old body. So there's this constant back and forth. Thomas, if you remember, uh, who's doubting Thomas, poor guy, that's how we remember him in history. Um, But he was like, I won't believe until I see the marks in his hands and his feet. And Jesus is like, put your hand right here. It's, this is me. This is my body. This, this is me. This is Jesus, the same Jesus that you've walked with for three years. And yet, in some respects, I mean, he rose from the dead. It's a different body. 
And so we begin to get a little picture. Paul even says that Jesus' body is the first fruits of a new harvest that we will all participate in and enjoy. You're going to get a new body someday, but it's going to be yours. What's that? It's the old you and it's the new you. It's that old body with all those stories and it's a new body with a completely different narrative out ahead of you. See, Jesus' new body gives us this massive clue about your future body and my future body, a body that is old and new, a body where the soul can no longer be detached from it. It will be us, even bearing perhaps some of the scars of life, the story of pain and suffering that have now been healed, and yet it will be a new glorified body unaffected by the sorrow and tragedy and pain of this life. Church, I want to suggest to you, if part of the Christian story is that one day you're going to get a new body where body and soul are joined as one, aren't we now to participate in that renewal? Aren't we now to participate in learning what does it look like to be body and soul united in one being and to see that in the world? See, bodies have been fractured from our souls, but in Christ, our bodies bear his image and one day will be whole and glorified. For the sake of time, I'm going to pause there. I think this is enough for us to consider, and so I'm going to ask our musicians to come up and ask our deacons to hop in the corners over here. My suspicion, because I know it's true for me, my suspicion is that healing needs to happen for many of us. And if this is a place of healing, a people of healing, then you don't go about the story or the process of your healing once you leave to be by yourself to figure it out. We're in this together. That doesn't mean that you have to do anything crazy. We're not going to ask you to share a story or expose something about who you are that you're not ready to. But we do want to pray for you. And our deacons are going to be up here during the next song. If there's a part of your story where we're saying anger is just constantly fracturing my soul and I need to know the peace of the love of God, I need my fears to be released through his love and not through my anger, then we'd love to pray for you. If this idea of body and soul being brought back together again in Christ is something that you need prayer for, whether it's how you see yourself or you believe you're seen by others or how you see others, we want to walk that road of healing with you. And so as we sing this song, let's take time to pray. Let's take time to share with one of the deacons. If you don't want to share anything, just sit there silently. They'll pray for you. And we'd love to walk through this journey with you to see how the Lord is going to make us whole together as his people. So let me pray, and then we'll begin to sing and pray together. Father, what a good God you are, that you are willing to look at your creation and say, that's broken, but I'm going to fix it. That's wounded, but I'm going to heal it. That's separated, but I'm going to bring it back together again. There is no one like you. There is no one who loves like that, and there is certainly no one who is capable and able like that to bring healing to the deepest levels of our hearts and our beings and our identity and our story and our soul. So would you heal us? Mind, body, soul, spirit, would you make us one? In Jesus' name.